0: Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. All right, good morning. I'm certainly happy to see everybody here today. Um, it's always good to see Y'all smiling faces looking back up here at me. As I know, you're probably maybe happy to see my smiling face looking back at you. I'll leave that up to you. Uh, But I appreciate you being here. Um, As I said in Bible class, it's a little bittersweet for me today because it's my last Sunday here for a while because I'll be flying back to Tanzania tomorrow. So y'all be praying about that. It's going to be a long plane ride, and it's going to be a very busy time for me there. So y'all be in prayer about that. Today, we are going to be finishing up our study through Romans. We kind of took a brief time in the last few weeks to look through the book of Romans at some of the highlights. And when Lee left to go on his trip, he said, I want you to preach about the aspects of the family from Romans 16, the aspects of the family. Now, we're not talking about our at-home families. We're talking about the family of Christ, the family of God. And we see some very particular things in Romans 16 that are marks and they serve as identifiers of what the family of God actually looks like. But before we go there, we need to understand the context that Paul is writing in. So I would ask you first to go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 will give us... A beginning picture of what Paul has in his mind is the idea of family in the church. And if you will look in verse 42, I'm just going to fly through these real quick so we can get through these and get to Romans. But I want you to pay attention as we go through these. In verse 42, we see that the early church was bound in both doctrine and fellowship And that they prayed together. This is one part of their family aspect. Uh, Verse 43, we see that they're marked by their sense of awe. And this is not even necessitated by the signs and wonders being done. They were just so awe-filled by the life they lived together and by the power of the Spirit personally in their own lives that it translated into how they functioned as a family. When we look at ourselves, do we just walk around all the time with a, a sense of awe about who we are and where we belong in the church are we ever just awe-filled to be part of the family of God? I know these people were. Beginning in verses 44 and 45, now we see that they had all things in common. they sold their things to give them to any who had need. And in verses 46 and 47, we see that they shared life together in the form of table fellowship, that is breaking of bread in each other's homes. and they shared life together in the form of religious piety and in their form of their social status. They were not content just to come to gather to worship once a week and then go home and not talk to each other again after that. They lived life together as a functioning family. They prayed together. They ate with each other. They were constantly spending time with each other. They thrived on the fellowship that they had there. They depended on that fellowship. It seems to me like in our day and age we like to just come to worship and we get that out of the way and then we go home for the week and we don't see or speak to many people, if any people, in the church at all until we see him on Wednesday. This is not a picture of what we see in the New Testament as a family. And that's just in Acts 2. If we go now to Acts chapter 4, we see this picture more fully fleshed out. In Acts chapter 4, if you look there in verse 32... We see that they shared one heart and one soul. Can we say, now we might be able to say this here, but if you look at the church as a whole, can we actually say that we share a heart and soul with other brothers and sisters in Christ? We share the same longing of our heart, that we share the same desire and, and purpose of the soul at a deep and, and close level. That's something we should strive for. Again in Acts chapter 4, also in verse 32, we see that again they had all things in common and they didn't claim personal ownership of anything that was theirs so that they could care for each other's needs. This is so not us in today's culture. This is not what characterizes our culture. This is my home, my car, my things. This is my life and I will let you in on some of it, but I will not let you in on all of it. That's not what we see in the New Testament either. Now, I'm not saying that we just have to go and, you know, invite all of the city strangers into our homes. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that they did not regard it as theirs to be hoarded. They shared all of these things in common with each other. If their brother needed something, they would go sell something of their own to be able to provide for their brother's needs. They would uh, hear the need, and they'd say, what can I get rid of to be able to afford to help my brother? They didn't have this hoarding mentality of this is my life, my things, my home, my personal possessions, all of these things. This is not mine. This is to be used for the glory of God. And God instructs me to take care of my brother in Christ. So, what can I get rid of in order to see that through? This is definitely not a picture of first century Christianity, or not first century, 21st century Christianity. This is a picture of first century Christianity, though. If we see a brother in need of a home, we provide that. If we see a brother in need of a family, we provide that. We meet each other's needs. Verse 33 in chapter 4, they see that their fellowship was marked by great grace. Let me say that if the family of Christ is not characterized by displaying his grace in a very present and very real way, then we are not actually the family of Christ, but rather we are deceived into thinking we are when we are really not. Is our fellowship And is our family here at Warm Springs Road marked by the grace of Christ? When people on the outside look at our fellowship here, in in Columbus, but also worldwide as the church, is the first thing that comes to their mind, the grace of Christ. Is that what we're known for? If not, that's something we need to be working on. And when we go through all of this, to set the backdrop for what Paul says in Romans 16. Because when we understand that this is the context that Paul is living in, it makes more sense when we read his closing remarks in Romans. You know, a lot of times we'll read Romans, and we can go ahead and turn there now. A lot of times when we read Romans chapter 16, we just see this you know laundry list of names. And it's just this monotonous, we just gloss over it, and we don't ever pay attention to what Paul's actually saying to these people and about these people. We just say, oh, he's just making some nice closing regards for some people he cares about. Big whoop. What does that have to do for my life right now in 21st century America? And I would say that it has a lot to do with our life in 21st 21st century America because of the implications of the family aspect that Paul is greeting these people with. Today I want to go through this and I want to look at the marks of the family of God There will be four of those, and I want to look then at the end at two marks of unbiblical fellowship. So we have four marks of the family of God and then two marks of unbiblical fellowship. And we're going to go through these and see if they fit into our context here. But first we need to read Romans chapter 16, or at least part of it. Begin with me in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kinkrae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved, uh, these names, I'm telling you, uh, Panettis, we'll go with that, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me, greet Ampelitus, my brother in the Lord, greet Urbanus, who, or our fellow worker in Christ, rather, and my beloved Stachys, I'm telling you these names, they'll, they'll get you if you're not careful. It's not even as bad as the Old Testament, but it's still getting me. Uh, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, uh, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asencretus, Phlegon Hermes. Patrobus, Hermas, and brothers who are with, and the brothers who are with them, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and her sister, his sister. Rather, excuse me, I'm getting all kinds of tongue-tied. And Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. In verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of naive. I want to stop there. And while we stumbled and fumbled through pronouncing all those names, we need to notice the first mark of the family of God or the family of Christ. And that is these are not just names. These are not just names to Paul. See, Paul sees each and every one of these people as actual family, as actual family. And this is so important because a lot of the times I think we come to church and we think that it's more of just a social gathering of holy people coming to just praise God together. And it's so much more than that. See, the first mark of the family of God is that they are an actual family. I've said this a couple times and I'm going to say it again, but have we ever stopped to think about the fact that you are more closely related to the person in this room that is sitting with you today than you are your own blood relatives? And that's because of Christ. You are more closely related to the person sitting in front of you or behind you today than you are your own mother or father. This is a huge difference than the way that we come and, and perceive the family of God to be. Because this also places a responsibility on us. See, when we're family, it, it requires more of us than if we we're simply acquaintances that meet together for worship. If you are my actual brother and my actual sister, now I have a responsibility to care for you in ways that I would never care for you before. And now I have a responsibility to meet your needs in a way that I've never done before. It deepens the level of relationship because we're responsible for each other. You know, family is more significant than friends. We all know that. But that, that rarely transcends into our church family. Like I said, we come together on Sunday. We have a great time. We worship. We enjoy the fellowship. But it never carries out. And if it does carry out, not as often as it should. And we just come together again on Wednesday. And then we don't see each other again till Sunday. When has this ever been the part of the church that we read about in the Bible? See, Paul sees these people as actual brothers and actual sisters. When he looks at Aristobulus, he does not see a friend. He does not see some fellow worker in the Lord. He might see that, but that's not what he sees first. What he sees first is his actual brother. What about for us? When I see Gary... Do I see him as my actual brother in Christ? He is my real big brother in Christ. What about Miss Ginger? Is she my actual sister in Christ? Or is she just a really sweet lady who comes to church that I enjoy talking to? What about Forrest? Is he my actual older brother in Christ? See, when we approach the family of God this way, it changes the way we see everything. It changes the way we fellowship, it changes the way we live our lives because we want to spend time with our family more than we want to spend time with our mere acquaintances that we come together for holy purposes. Paul here, and not in so many words, but the the spirit of what Paul is doing here echoes what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. And in, in this context, Jesus is with his disciples and his family comes up to him and When his disciples make known the fact that they are there, Jesus turns and he says this. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. See, Jesus recognized, or or not even recognized, he knows already, but Jesus set forth a standard of family kinship and the disciples that follow him where those who serve the Lord on high who are in Christ are closer than their actual family. And this is something we need to adopt. The next mark that we see from Romans chapter 16 is the mark of closeness. We've talked about the mark of actual family, the mark of actual brother and sistership, but we also see the mark of closeness we read through this list, and again, we have a temptation just to gloss over it, but we see that Paul is mentioning very particular, very intimate things about these people. He's not just mentioning them for the sake of giving a hearty shout out, saying, oh, you should meet this guy. He's giving very specific things about these people. What does that indicate? It indicates that he shares a close personal relationship with them. He shares closeness with them, and A level of of spiritual intimacy that cannot be fake or fabricated or superficial or face value. And this is something we all really want, right? Isn't that what everybody wants? To have a, a deep, meaningful relationship with people of like mind and like faith that we can lean upon when we are struggling in life. This is what we want And when we look at the lives that we live, we see that there are certain barriers that we have to closeness. There are certain things that keep us from attaining the closeness that we want. And the first thing that we see is barrier number one is emotional and spiritual walls. We like to build up emotional and spiritual walls around the deepest parts of ourselves. That way nobody can penetrate that wall. That's my own private struggle. That's my own private hurt. That's my own private... Affliction, and nobody gets to know that, that's for me to know and for nobody to find out. But let me tell you, when we adopt that mentality, then nobody will ever get to know us deeply enough to truly help us through the hard times. You know, we throw up these barriers and these walls that prevent people from actually getting close to us and actually knowing us because we're afraid and we are uncomfortable with letting people know the darkest parts of our heart. We throw up these barriers because we are more uncomfortable and afraid of people knowing who we really are than allowing them to administer the grace of Christ into our lives and to give us the strength that we need. We will never be the family of God unless we learn to take down those barriers around those parts of our lives. And isn't that why we are afraid of maybe coming forward at the end of every sermon and the invitation? You know, we don't have to come forward just confessing sin. We can come forward just because we have a heavy heart and we want people to know that and we want people to pray for us and with us and spend time with us and encourage us. This this front row is not just for repentance of sin. This is the place where your family can know your needs and meet your needs. Let's not be afraid of allowing the barrier to drop and taking the veneer off of our smiling faces while inwardly we are hurting and dying. Because there is a family of God ready to minister to you and, and help provide the grace of Christ in your life. We don't have to always have the barrier up. The second barrier we see to the mark of closeness is busyness. Busyness. You know, I would spend more time trying to develop personal relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ. But I tell you what, I am just so busy. Busy. I have work and I have to pay the bills and I've got to get the kids to school and I gotta do this and that and name the list. It goes on and on and on and we always find something with which to be busy and we never actually make it a priority to spend time with each other. We can never develop a deep, close relationship with the family of God if we're more worried about the superficial things of life than the life giving source of joy we have in the family of God. And truly it will not be a very fulfilling life either. We need to not be too busy. And I will put forth that if we are too busy to develop the relationships with our brothers and sisters that we need to, then we're too busy. Straight up, we're too busy. The third barrier we see to closeness and intimacy in the family of God is skewed priorities. Skewed priorities. You know, we prioritize other things than time with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and my personal downtime to me is more important than going and visiting a brother or sister. My work day is done, so I just want to go home and I want to prioritize time with my own family rather than time with my family that I'm technically more closely related to by the blood of Christ anyway. See, when you say it like that, it sounds ludicrous. When you say it like that, you're like, well, this doesn't make sense because my family belongs to this family, but I want to spend time isolated from that family for the sake of, Isolation in my own household? Why? Why? See, we prioritize things that in the long run just, just skew our ability to have meaningful, spiritual, edifying relationships in the church. We prioritize you know, time watching Netflix, time watching YouTube videos, time on some other recreational activity than time with the brethren. And with this skewed priority system, We can never grow close as the family of God. We can never have an Aristobulus like Paul had. We can never have this laundry list of people in our lives that we can say very personal things about and the way that we care about them. We will never have that if we are more prioritized towards ourselves and the things we enjoy. Take time to be with your brethren. Working through Romans 16 some more, we see a third mark, and that is the mark of service the mark of service. If you read chapter 16, in the first few verses, we read of a woman named Phoebe. And again, we may just gloss over Phoebe, but let's take a moment to look what Paul says about Phoebe. First of all, he tells the people there, say, welcome her in a manner that is the Lord. Worthily welcoming her, worthily serving her. Why? Because Phoebe has served me and many others as well. See, here in the mark of service, we see that that Paul mentions Phoebe, that she may serve, that they may serve her as the same way that she has served others. You know, the standard of service towards each other is a mark that cannot be ignored in the family of God. What are we willing to do to serve each other? You know, Phoebe provided her resources, provided her time, provided her her services for the sake of people who needed her. And sometimes we see that our family members may need us and we're okay and content with simply calling them on the phone and say, hey, I thought about you. And then we leave it alone after that. (laughs) We don't ever go any further than simply saying, hey, I was thinking about you today. Hope to see you Sunday. Bye. This is not the picture of Phoebe. Phoebe. We see that Phoebe dedicated herself to serving Paul and others who were in need. And as a result, Paul tells the people of Rome, saying, You serve her the same way. You serve her in a way that she has served me, and you do so because it'll be worthy of the Lord. Now, when he says that there is service that is worthy of the Lord, what does that also imply? That there's service that's not worthy to the Lord. There is a type of service that you can give that is not worthy. My fear is that sometimes our, our service can become half-hearted and to the point where we're just making a, an effort just to say we did something, but we don't really care enough to go further than that. And through the half-hearted service, well, I'm afraid that we might be serving in a way that is not worthy, that we might not be welcoming in a way that is worthy of the Lord. I'm afraid that sometimes we might become self-centered in the way that we serve and will help to a certain point, but if it requires me to go further than that, then, well, that's just a big inconvenience to me. This is not the type of service that Paul is talking about in Romans 16. He's talking about the service where they have all things in common, where your hurts are my hurts, your struggles are my struggles, and I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that stops. You need something, well, I need that same thing because you need that same thing. And therefore, I'm going to make sure that you have that need taken care of. That's the kind of service that is worthy of the Lord. Not this half-hearted, give you a quick little call and then leave it alone and not going any further to make sure that you're provided for. running out of time here so we're going to move forward number four the mark of risk we've seen the mark of actual family the mark of closeness the mark of service and now the final mark and that's the mark of risk we read about Prisca and Aquila after Phoebe we see one very key identifier about them and what they did for Paul and that is that they risked their necks for Paul They risked their own safety and their own lives for the sake of Paul. How many of us, if let's just assume that we were in a a persecution-type scenario, and we found out that one of our brothers and sisters here has been condemned to an awful fate because of their faith. How many of us would actually get up and risk our own safety and our own lives to intervene and help with their need, knowing full well that you might die in the process. Now, we may sit here in our comfortable church buildings and say, oh, yeah, I do that. Because it's easy to say that when there's not an actual threat. It's easy to say that when there's not a a reason for our necks to be on the line. But it's a lot different when we're in that situation, the point being is we need to be people who are willing and ready to risk everything about ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be willing to, to throw ourselves out there and just stick our necks out for our brethren, provide for them, and, and help them through that struggle and that challenge. Because that's exactly what Christ did for us. You know, Christ gave up his glory. He gave up his comfort. He gave up his comfort his luxurious abode with the Father in heaven to take on the pitiful, disgusting, filthy form of this fleshly human existence only to walk through life without a pillow or stone to lay his head on and then be crucified at the end of that life. He did all of that as the Holy Son of God, the Holy Word of God for you. So why is it that sometimes we would be unwilling to do that for the people that Christ did that for? We need to have the spirit and the mind of Christ where we're willing to risk everything for the sake of our brothers and sisters who need help. I was reading a book from Francis Chan earlier this week. Well, I should say listening. It's an audiobook, And I don't agree with everything he says doctrinally. But he gives a good illustration. A really good illustration. And it's about a man who lived in Germany during the time of the Holocaust. And this man identified as a Christian. And he gives a story a true life story about his life. And I'm going to read that, that story to you coming from this man's own perspective. He says this. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we were trying to distance ourselves from it. Because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me and forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. My fear is that when it comes to a world around us that's in hurt, specifically brothers in Christ who are in other areas of the world who are suffering and hurting because of persecution or whatever other ill fortune has beset them, that instead of going and intervening in their situations and in their lives, we are sitting here comfortably in our church buildings, singing songs more loudly, and in our singing, drowning out the cries of our brothers and sisters who need My fear is that instead of risking a bit of our comfort and a bit of our lifestyles, that we are just singing more loudly to drown out the cries of the people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who are suffering at the hands of worldly evil people, for the sake of the gospel, and we're sitting here singing more loudly and more loudly and more loudly. God forgive us if we have become the people who, instead of risking everything for the sake of our brothers and sisters who need our help, would rather sit back and sing praises to God so that we don't have to intervene in their situation. God forgive us if we are not the family members. To those people who are suffering for the cause of Christ, because we like our situation here more than putting ourselves on the line for their sake when something can be done. I pray that we will learn to have the marks of this Christian family, and we will develop them and learn to enjoy the fellowship that is meant to be had in Christ. These are the marks of what it looks like to be the family of God, but this picture is not complete unless we look at the two things that Paul gives that show what the family of God isn't, what it's not supposed to look like. We get this beginning in verses, or or, or contained in 17 and 18 in chapter 16. Let's read that again real quick together. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. All right, I have two marks for unbiblical fellowship here but I'm going to lump them together because they go together. And the first mark is the mark of division. The mark of division. And the next mark we see is the mark of obstacles. The mark of obstacles. Paul talks about two kinds of people here. And maybe they do the same thing. At the, or, or maybe they do both of these things at the same time even. Or one or the other individually. Unsure. But he says watch out for people who cause divisions. The one thing that will kill the fellowship of the church faster than anything is divisiveness, contentiousness, And people who are not willing to unite under the blood of Jesus Christ, but rather to pick fights with everything that's going on. Watch out for divisiveness and dividers of the body of Christ, and watch out for those who throw obstacles in the way of others. See, this is where the text gets really, really heavy. It's really heavy because it causes us to look very deeply and honestly at ourselves and whether or not we are a person of this nature, whether we do these things. Now, I'm not going to claim that this passage of Scripture is going to be pleasant to talk about, but it's something that needs to be talked about because I don't want to get get to the end on Judgment Day and then have Christ tell me that I was a divider of His bride. I don't want any of you to have to go through that, so we need to talk about it. The sad reality is that if you or I ever actively divide the church, even with the best of intentions, we are actively failing to adhere to the doctrine of Christ. We're actively failing to adhere to the doctrine of Christ. And that's what Paul says here. He says, these people cause divisions and they throw obstacles in the way, which is contrary to the doctrine that they have been taught. That's the very first thing he says about them. It's contrary to the doctrine they've been taught. The doctrine of Christ is to love one another. When Jesus is talking to his disciples in the book of John, before he goes to his crucifixion, What does he say is the major defining characteristic of his disciples? What will they be known by? Their division? The stumbling blocks they throw in front of each other? No, it's their love. It's their love. The doctrine of Christ is that you love one another, and by your love they will know that you are my disciples. The mark of division. If we ever cause or stir up brothers to be divided or draw dividing lines between brothers and sisters of Christ even with the best intentions then we are deceived if we think that we are doing so for the glory of God actively stirring up division is actively drawing and quartering the body of Christ and actively drawing and quartering the bride of Christ to which we will have to answer to her husband for in the end and I don't want that for me I don't want that for you I don't want that for anybody the next point is those who throw out stumbling blocks. If you or I ever cause or throw out obstacles in the way of our brothers, even with the best intentions that hinders them from running, we are actively deciding to not serve Christ. We're actively deciding to not serve Christ. That's the second thing Paul mentions. He says that these people do not serve Christ but rather they are slaves of their own appetites, their own selfish desires, their own wants, their own needs, and they're not concerned about the needs of their brothers. They're more concerned about what they want. And as a result, they throw an obstacle out there to make their brother stumble just so that they won't continue in a way that displeases them. Don't be this way. I'm not saying that we are this way, but we have to give the warning because we never need to be this way. The third thing we observe about these people is that Paul tells them that they are to avoid such people, for they are not serving Christ, but rather their own desires. My iPad is acting up. And notice that Paul is not labeling these people as false teachers. Okay, he's not just stating that they're false teachers outright. What he is saying, though, is that they are diseased and sick sheep of the fold. They are sick sheep of the fold. So here, we need to be careful here when it comes to avoiding others, because I've seen this as a problem before, where we just avoid everybody and we make it a a fellowship matter and we just disfellowship everybody and we draw lines of fellowship unnecessarily and we we go crazy with this. And pretty soon we draw so many lines of fellowship and draw so many fellowship circles that we're the only one standing in it. So we need to be careful when it, when it comes to what Paul means by avoid. It's not talking about that. Let's, let's talk about something. This does not mean that being, well, this does not mean that we should be carried away about drawing lines of fellowship anywhere we see a disagreement between us. That's not what Paul means here. It does not mean that if we disagree on something, we draw a line of fellowship about it. Okay, number two, this does not mean that we withdraw fellowship in all cases. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What is Paul talking about here? Is it possible to avoid somebody who stirs up division and throws stumbling blocks without withdrawing fellowship from them? Absolutely, because the point of what Paul is saying is don't allow their sphere of influence to cause you to make divisions, See, the problem is when we start drawing lines of fellowship about somebody we think is throwing stones at other people, the problem with that is now we have caused a division between us and them, and we have just become the very thing we're trying to prevent. We have just become the very thing that we're trying to destroy. We've become the very thing that we're trying to to work around in doing that, and that is just as bad, and that's just as divisive. That's not what Paul means. When he says avoid them, he's talking about avoiding their sphere of influence so that you do not get sucked into the poison and toxicity of the divisiveness when it comes to the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ is not divided. The body of Christ is marked by love, by closeness, and by fellowship. Not by division, not by stumbling blocks. So this does mean that we can avoid people without withdrawing from them. And the ultimate Paul, point Paul is making here is to not let their divisiveness make us divisive. not let their stumbling blocks trip us up and then we just take the stumbling block and throw it right back at them so that they stumble again. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is don't let their influence bring you to that level. Strive for love. Strive for unity. Strive for the marks that Paul has already characterized in the other parts of the chapter. As we're wrapping up in Romans 16... Let us strive with all of our hearts and souls to unite rather than to divide. Let us desire love and not division. The world will know that we are disciples of Christ by our love, not our ability to divide or to throw roadblocks in front of each other when we don't like what's happening. If love is an identifying factor for the church, which belongs to Jesus, I'm afraid that many people in the world might get a better picture of love from people who don't have the spirit of Christ. Let that never be true where people can look at people who are not characterized by the Spirit of Christ and get a better picture of love than the love that we show each other. Because if that's the case, then they're not seeing disciples. They're seeing a bunch of people who can't stand together in love. What kind of picture are we showing the world of the supposed bride of Christ if we contend with each other over things that don't matter and name it something like striving for purity, or giving God our best, or fighting off the wickedness of Satan in the body of Christ. We're not giving an accurate picture of love in that instance. You know, we call it giving God our best, but what if I told you that God is not interested in your best? He has never been interested in your best. Christ did not die on the cross for your best. Christ died on the cross for your all. And if we are only concerned with giving Him our best, but not our all, then that means we have refused to take the crown of contentiousness off our head and cast it at the foot of the cross. We need to be people who give Christ our all, and that means surrendering our desires and crucifying ourselves with Christ that He may live in us and not our own appetites and not our own hopes, our own dreams, and our own ambitions, our own desires. We do that through baptism. We do that through repentance. We do that through prayer and support of the family of God. Coming to the end of this lesson, if we realize that maybe we haven't been the family we need to be, or maybe we are, and we just need to be encouraged to strive ever more, Strive for these things. Strive to be united in these ways. If that's what we need, then so be it. We're here to encourage each other and to love each other, to support each other, and we want to be the close family that Paul talks about. We want to look at each other and regard each other as brother and sister, when I, when I see you here, you're my actual brother and it fills my heart with joy to see that you are here and we have fellowship together. When we're a family, we do things for each other and we put ourselves at risk for each other. When we're a family, we are, are close and we strive to tear down the barriers that keep us from being close to each other. We strive for all these things. But if we are the people instead that cause division, or maybe we realize in our own hearts that we have been people who throw stumbling blocks in front of others, now is the time as well where we can come and ask for forgiveness and repentance and we can become the family again. See, I don't know what the situation is in everyone's life. I can know you very well, and I feel like I know a lot of you very well. But at the end of the day, the hardest thing for a preacher to do (coughs) is to... Be a healer to the hurting and a surgeon to the injured, while at the same time being somebody who can wield the sword of the Spirit in a way that defends God's people from harm. You know, sometimes we don't know who needs the surgery, sometimes we don't know who needs the healing, and sometimes we don't know who needs the sword wielded against them. But I pray that through God's Word and through the things that we've talked about today, that the message has landed where it needs to land in your life. That if you are longing for the family aspect of the church, that you will be encouraged and uplifted and, and healed by the thought that we can be close to one another and be encouraged by that. Or maybe if we're injured for some reason spiritually and we're hurting, we need repair, reparative surgery in our hearts. We pray that this message may have landed there in that area so that it can work on us and restore us so that we might be brought back to where we need to be. Whatever the The need is, whatever it is, and I know that God knows, I pray that you will also make that need known to us so we can help you and we can love you through it. And we ask you, if you have that need, to come forth and make it known as together we stand and sing.